We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. The episode today is a double pleasure. I am welcoming back a guest from last year whose testimony on this podcast moved me deeply and taught me so much. Our topic is something I've been thinking of covering for a long time. In my opinion, it's one of the most important skills needed to build a meaningful life. So let me introduce today's witness. Dr. Catherine Mannix has spent her medical career working with people with incurable advanced illness and has been one of the pioneers of palliative care as a specialist medical discipline. She's the author of With the End in Mind, which was shortlisted for the Wellcome Prize and became a bestseller. Our topic today, however, is listening. How to listen, really listen. And it sits alongside another edition of this podcast called How to Be Heard, Really Heard. Catherine has a new book out called Listen, How to Find the Words for Tender Conversations, where she shares some more stories from her experiences as a doctor and some skills she learned as a CBT therapist. If you don't know what CBT stands for, it's Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. Let's start by unpacking the title of your book, How to Find the Words for Tender Conversations. I mean, that's a beautiful idea. Can you explain what you mean by it? So thank you. Yes. And thank you for inviting me back. So I started using the word tender about conversations that we feel a little bit daunted by quite a while ago. And I started to use it really as a a counter response to the language of difficult conversations, challenging conversations, language that suggests that we need to be in some way defended or defensive or armoured to go into the conversation, because I suspect that that then changes our conduct during the conversation. And if we go into a conversation prepared to be alongside the distress that might arise there of either party, then we are going in, I suppose, a little bit vulnerable, but also available. And I think that changes the transaction at a fundamental level. So tenderness seems to me to be a really important component of what we offer as a listener, whether that's for a friend, a family member, or whether it's what we're bringing as professionals and therapists. And I like the idea of how to find the words, because I think a lot of times we're stopped from having difficult conversations because we just feel, what words do we need? Do we actually have the words? Yeah, that's really true, isn't it? And and in fact, it's a slightly misleading subtitle because once you start to delve into the book, I am not giving people words at all. What I'm saying is if we step into this place with tenderness and use curiosity as our tool so that we're trying more deeply to understand it, the words that we need will arrive that actually scripts pervert a conversation and curiosity enables the conversation that we need to have together to happen. So that's a good way of putting it. We're going to be going through some of the skills you actually need to really arrive there and the words and the listening will come from that. So I think that's that's why I really love the uh, the title. So you start the book with a wonderful story which sort of illustrates some of the problems of listening. When you were sort of more or less at the beginning of your career, you had a, a marvellous masterclass from one of your colleagues called Dorothy. Now, you'd broken some bad news by the book to the wife whose husband had died, but this conversation went horribly wrong. What happened? So I was maybe... 14, 15 months after qualifying. So I was a very, very junior doctor. And this was the first occasion on which I'd had to tell somebody that their beloved relative had died when I hadn't 
previously met them. So I'd had those conversations on the ward where I was based, where I was telling families I'd already met at visiting times and I'd been updating them on their person's progress already. But this was after a resuscitation attempt in the emergency department and we were not able to restore this patient's heart He'd arrived in an ambulance, blue flashing light, having collapsed at work. And his wife had been sent for by his colleagues and she'd arrived at the hospital and was sitting in the waiting room. And at the end of the resuscitation attempt, I was pretty much exhausted and wrung out, but I was expecting to be given the usual junior doctor job, which is writing up what happened, making sure all of the drugs have been recorded, those sorts of things, whilst the senior doctor there went to break the bad news to the family. And for reasons that I I will never understand, the senior doctor sent me on my own to do that. So what training have you been given to deal with this conversation? Well, when you're going through medical school, there is training about how to break bad news. And that's what it's called, breaking bad news. When you need to tell somebody that a person has died, so by the book would be to check, first of all, that you've got the right person, particularly in the casualty department where there are lots of families flowing through with very sick relatives. You don't actually want to tell the wrong family that their person has died. And, and it's been known. Um, I'm sure it has. So, so There's something about this topic that brings up a lot of humour, yeah. so please. It's, 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 it's the survival, isn't it? It's the survival <laughs> mechanism. So to check you've got the right person and then to give them a warning shot so they're not totally unprepared. I'm sorry, I've got really dreadful news for you. And then not to play with them like a cat and mouse by giving them little bits at a time, but actually to say, you know, I'm really, really sorry to say that X, use the person's name, has died. And so I knew that that was what I had to do. I have to say I felt quite sick before I even went into the room, but the thought of doing that And I went inside and I checked who this lady was and she was the wife of this person who'd just died. And then I gave my warning shot and I can remember she was sitting down on a, you know, what they call comfy chairs in hospital, which are just uncomfortable but low (laughs) padded chairs. So she was sitting on an uncomfy, comfy chair and I was standing above her. And in my memory, I get taller and taller and taller as I remember it. I'm further and further and further away from her with my white coat on. And I think I might even have been clutching the lapels of my white coat in my own terror. Um, And I said to her that her husband had died. And I don't remember the words I said because I think I was distracted by what happened next, which was there was a very bright orange light and a very sharp pain in my face. And I found myself staggering backwards. And I realised she must have stood up, punched me in the face. And then immediately she just collapsed onto this seat. So she's sitting down, her body folded forwards, her hands over the back of her head, just wailing and shouting at me that I was a liar. It couldn't possibly be true. I just, that, that's not in the book. That's not what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to be shocked and you're supposed to be sad. And I, you know, we haven't been told what to do next. And I'm just standing there feeling awful, sad, sick, as, a, as though I'm about to pass out because I've had a stonking great thud in my face. And the door opened and one of the staff nurses, Dorothy, came in, in fact, with a porter who I realised was like the security detail. So they'd clearly heard through the, you know, thin cardboard walls of this room. And I can remember thinking, oh goodness, we don't need a security issue here. That that would just be the worst. And Dorothy asked the porter to wait outside. And then she came in and she told me to sit down and she pointed at a chair and I just did as I was told. <laughs> and she sat beside this lady and just began to comfort her, to console her, to hold one hand, to stroke her shoulder with her other hand and just say, oh, this is all so shocking. And she was using 
expressions like my love, my dear, my pet, which would be the local colloquial way of speaking to somebody that you knew quite well. This must be so difficult for you, my love. I'm so very sorry. And then she started to ask her questions. But I think what's interesting is she actually sat down beside the lady who'd lost her partner. What was that like, watching that? It was so interesting for me, just watching the whole thing. I just started to see all the things I could have done that didn't think to do. Why didn't I sit down? Why didn't I reach for her hand as I said, I've got the most terrible news? Why did I stand there being a armoured doctor? Up, but with, yeah, be, being almost like a parody of a doctor. And I stood up, I had a white coat on, I was gripping my white coat. I was standing in my place of reassuring myself of my power. I realise now. But at the time, I think all I felt was utter powerlessness. And that, you know, grown-up me can see that young me and young doctors and nurses and others in that situation are let down by our training and our system if we're given a task like that with no companion, no mentor, no witness to give feedback, no person to be beside the person that we're devastating with the news that we're giving. So I watched Dorothy demonstrating kindness, compassion, companionship, and then this wonderful skill of, did you know he was ill? So these are curious questions, and this is we're going to come back to mm. this over and over again. Curious questions are really important, aren't they? Absolutely. And what she did was to ask this lady to recount her understanding of her husband's health. And it turned out, of course, that he'd had a previous heart attack, that he'd nearly died that time, that she felt he'd been on borrowed time ever since then, that he hadn't looked well recently, that she'd thought he shouldn't go to work this morning, that she was almost not surprised by the phone call to say he'd collapsed. And what Dorothy did by asking these questions and by giving little summaries like, oh, so you, you were already worried about his health. Oh, so even you thought maybe he was on borrowed time already, did you? So questions and then little summaries. She just helped this woman to lay stepping stone by stepping stone by stepping stone towards the truth. What she did was helped her to tell Dorothy, but therefore to tell herself the story so far. And she did it with complete kindness, consummate professionalism, and it's the best communication skills class I have ever, ever attended. And she also managed to look after you too at the same time. So she told me to sit down. She then looked at me from time to time during the conversation. And then once she'd got to the place where this new widow was able to be ready to be taken to sit with her her dead husband in a, in a little cubicle in a bed around the corner. She said, okay, so I, I can take you now to see him if, if you'd like to. You know, is there anybody else you'd like to have here? And then she gave me a job that she knew I could do, which was, she sent me to make tea. That may have been the beginning of my tea making journey, in fact, <laughs> because she knew that I, therefore, I would need to come into the room because I'd have to deliver the tea. And she told me to bring one for myself as well, which was about saying, I'm expecting you to come and join us because this is not finished. And by the time I delivered the tea, I delivered the tea to a quietly weeping, becalmed new widow who was immensely grateful for the tea and seemed to have no sense at all that she was responsible for the black eye that I was already evolving, that she was just in a completely different place in her mind and that if I had not been so worried about what to say, my script, if I had been better aware of how to be, which was 
companionship and person to person. You didn't need to be the doctor who could answer all the questions about the cardiac arrest. She wasn't going to be interested in the cardiac arrest. She was only going to be interested in, my husband has died. And so I now came back into the room as the lady with the tea. Even though I still had a white coat on, I was in a completely different place. The hierarchy had gone. The power balance was completely neutral now. We were three sorrowful women, two of us supporting the third whose whose sorrow was paramount. And at that point, you were able, I assume, to answer any questions that she might have had about the cardiac arrest. I would have been. And in fact, I don't really remember that part of the episode so well at all. But by then, I know one of the things that I would have done that I'd learned during my house jobs the year before was I would have given her my name and the telephone number on a piece of paper. And I'd I'd always offered to talk to people after a death and nobody ever got in touch. And I'd had a, a, a an elderly lady had died and her husband had come to visit her, probably been sent for because she'd taken very ill and we'd sent for him. And he'd found her bedroom door closed with a notice saying, please see the nursing staff. Um, and I'd, I'd been so overwhelmed by his sense of loneliness as I was telling him that she had died and he had nobody else, that I'd given him my name and address on a piece of paper. And he had subsequently phoned the ward, by which time I'd moved to a different ward, and the ward sister phoned the new place I was working to give me his number and get me to phone her back. And he'd been phoning me. In fact, I think this, this story is in the other book. He'd been phoning me to tell me that He'd thrown her toothbrush out that day and he felt so lonely he didn't know who else to tell and he had my number so he called and that was how I learned that people won't remember unless you give them something to take away. So certainly I will have given that lady contact details so that if she had more questions later on, she could have come back to me. And I think the the story of the man also illustrates the importance of just listening. There wasn't actually anything that needed to be said after he told you about throwing away the toothbrush. You just had to listen to it. Yeah, it just it's it's about companionship, isn't it? And we we mistake that for oh, I don't know doing something that will make it better, fixing it, and there is no fix. But our fear of getting it wrong often, and this is not just in death situations, in my couple practice, I see it all the time. People are so afraid of getting it wrong, making their partner angry, upsetting them, that they don't say anything at all. And in a way, that's actually worse than getting it wrong. What what do you think? Oh, I think that's really interesting. Yes. You can make a lot of assumptions, can't you, in a conversation. And then because you're not disabused of your assumptions, you continue to believe that the assumptions you made were correct. And that's one of the things that in in Listen, I've written about uh, the thing I tell medical students, which is the question, question, summary, waltz, where Having asked a couple of questions to ascertain some information about the person or their situation or, or whatever, we then offer back a summary of what we've understood so far in a way that allows them to correct it if we're wrong, if we move sideways into our own assumptions or whatever. Because if we don't do that regular checking, it's a little bit like the steering tracking being wrong on the car. You'll gradually drift further and further and further away from an aligned conversation, but you'll never realise that you've done that. Yeah, I use the same technique as well. And so if you don't know what to say, just summarise what you've just heard. And so, oh, you're really upset because I threw away your toothbrush, for example, rather than going into defending yourself because it'll make your partner feel that you're really listening rather than just waiting for your turn to cross-complain. And you buy yourself a bit of time to sort of, if the sort of anger building and you're beginning to feel a bit frightened inside, you've got a bit of time to sort of not go into your automatic reaction. So that's, um, you know, thank you for bringing that up because I think that's a really good tip. Summarising what you've just heard keeps the two of you aligned. That's beautiful. Thank you. 
And it's true for individuals having a conversation, friends, family. It's true for us as therapists too, isn't it? As you feel in the session that somehow we're not perhaps quite in kilter here, going back to summarising and often, in fact, asking the other person to summarise can be a really powerful way of sharing the space, saying, I'm not trying to control the power here. I just think maybe we started off talking about this and somehow are we drifting? I think maybe I haven't quite heard clearly what you're saying. I think it's this. Am I right? And do you want to tell me back what you think I'm saying so I can just check we're still working together, we're still aligned in this? And that requirement to work together, to move together, to guide each other in the place where we are is why I chose dance as the metaphor at the heart of this book, because it is a shared effort. A conversation isn't me doing something to you, which is exactly what happened to me on that terrible day when Dorothy recognised me. It's you and me in this space, trying our best with this shared endeavour. So what do you think are the basic skills that we need for listening? I think the real key is to be curious. And I'm interested to know what you think about this as a professional listener yourself. I think that curiosity, which is very close to nosiness, but I think it's its purpose that makes it not nosiness, but a version of kindness, kind curiosity, helps us to say there's nothing off limits here, that what I need to do is understand and what I need to do is stay out of my own way. That when we hear a person in distress describing their distress, most human beings will want to reduce the person's distress and help them fix the situation because we're, we're wired to be communal beings. That's what's ensured our survival as a species and shared problem solving is part of that. And the difficulty is that my fix reduces your space for exploring your sorrow or concern. So certainly as a therapist, I still find myself having to metaphorically sit on my hands to not try to fix things. Sometimes we move into the fixing role to make ourselves feel more comfortable. Mm. It becomes about us rather than the person who's in distress or angry or whatever. We're trying to say my feelings of being upset are more important than your feelings of being angry or whatever it is. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I don't think we realise that that's what's going on. I think our own distress drives that shutting this down behaviour of either reassuring somebody, oh, don't worry about that, it's going to be absolutely fine, we'll sort it out, really, or, you know, you will feel better than this at some point, or everything happens for a reason, all of those kind of platitudes, oh my, oh my goodness, those things that say, yes, I see you're really distressed, so that's good, you are saying, I see you're really distressed. But then you're also saying, and I don't want you to be distressed anymore, so I'm doing this kind of patting it down action of reassuring you in order to help you to put all of those difficult emotions away. Well, where is the person going to put those difficult emotions away? There isn't some nice, neat, fancy box they can wrap them in. It's themselves they have to put them away in. And there they are inside, hurting them, damaging them. And we're saying, okay, well, we're not going to talk about that now, are we? So the curiosity with kindness that allows us to tolerate being beside somebody who's deeply, deeply distressed, not trying to fix it, not trying to reassure them, but actually saying either with our words or with our language, what you're feeling right now is completely valid. And the other advantage of curious questions is it stops you getting into what I call barristers questions, because barristers will try and lead the witness. Am I right in thinking that the reason you threw away my toothbrush is because you're a a mean beep, beep, beep? Well, it's better than just accusing somebody of it, but you're leading them rather than asking them, why did you throw away the toothbrush, you know, and being genuinely interested in that piece of information. That's beautifully put. That's barristers' questions. I'm going to have to borrow that. That's beautifully put. 
Also, often I'm teaching clinicians about this style of questioning, and they have a style of clinical questioning, which is a list of questions that they need to get through, where each question is independent of the answer to the previous question. Do you have pain? Do you have nausea? Do you get breathlessness? How far can you run on the level? None of those answers will determine what the next question is going to be. This is completely different sort of listening, isn't it? Because if I'm listening to the answer to the first question, then I can't ask the second question until I've digested the answer to the first question, worked out what that's told me and what else about that I could find out or how we could expand that so that I can better understand the actual situation this person finds themselves in. So that means that the conversation requires thinking time. And that means that there are going to be silences. And silences are another anathema for people. We even call silence awkward silence, don't we, in English? Oh, that was an awkward silence. Well, in fact, no, that was a thoughtful silence. That was a necessary... A developing silence. Oh, beautiful. Yes. A necessary silence. A respectful silence that in our companionship, we're allowing ourselves the silence in which we can think, and we're also allowing them the silence in which they can think. And sometimes we ask a question, and there's a very long silence. And I invite people to time their very long silence because it will be a few seconds. It'll feel (laughs) like eternity. And you can feel yourself wanting to ask something else, a supplementary question, a bit of a nudge, just because the silence itself feels uncomfortable. And again, as you said before, Andrew, it's my discomfort. And when you debrief people who've been really carefully listened to, and there have been very long silences, they don't notice the silences because they're so busy, aren't they? In their heads, processing, working through, formulating into words the experience that's going on inside them so that they can respond to the other person's questions. So they're not aware of the silences at all. This is their thinking space. And it's really, really important that we preserve that and don't jump into it to help. From experience, I find silence quite difficult because I come from a background as a journalist where, and my original journalism was on the radio, and the worst thing on the radio is silence. You know, that's the, the completely forbidden topic. But if you can be silent, it really is what comes after the silence is nearly always the most important thing that's going to be said. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think so. we've got a couple of things. We've got curious questions. We've got don't be afraid of silence. And this is another distinction you make that I think is really helpful. You make the distinction between done to and worked with. Yeah. So going back to the Dorothy conversation is a great example of it. I went in to do a transaction. Tell this lady whom you have never met before that her husband has died bring her to an awareness of that fact. And I did that to her and she reciprocated by being so shocked that she punched me in the face and I deserved it really. Or the system that put her in that position of whom I was the agent deserved that. Yeah, I think that's a better way of putting it. Yeah. Because they should never have sent you alone for starters really, should they? No, they shouldn't. And in fact, the other half of that story is that once we'd managed to reach a place of calm and readiness for that lady, Dorothy then marched me to the head of department. And I thought she was actually going to shop me for bad practice. But what she was saying to the head of department was, this doctor has been bashed by a patient because she was sent out of her comfort zone with no mentor and no supervisor to do a task for which she was not yet ready. And we keep talking about chaperones and training the junior doctors in this department, and it keeps not happening. And now this has happened, and it's not fair. And the head of department was very, very kind. And what he and Dorothy said was actually, do you know what, this is going to make a great story for our training team to remember. 
that one of our staff has been assaulted, not with malice of forethought, but because we did not take the trouble as a team to assure that the way the news was broken by a person with the proper competency to do it happened. So we hurt somebody in our care so badly that she assaulted a member of our team. And what they said to me then was, you know, we've been talking about this for the longest time, but it's stories that change people's minds. And this story is going to change practice in this department. Well, you've got another story that beautifully cues me into something that I think is a really interesting idea in the book as well. And that's in between this sort of knowing and not knowing. Now, Terry was a nurse colleague and a supervisor in your CBT skills support unit, and his sisters and his dying mother is what the story is about. So perhaps you can tell us about the story and we can unpack what we can learn from it. So this was a really interesting situation. Terry and I used to meet once a month because we were both those unusual creatures of being physical health practitioners. So he was a very senior respiratory nurse and I was a palliative care physician, but we were also cognitive behaviour therapy practitioners. So we used to meet once a month for peer-to-peer cognitive therapy supervision. So most of our hour would be spent talking about the therapy that we were doing, patients we were currently seeing, difficulties we were encountering in the therapy, recent journal articles, we'd read that kind of thing. But we would always have a cup of coffee at the end and there'd be a bit of family chit chat. And it became apparent that his mum, who was becoming increasingly frail with heart failure, was probably starting to die. And she wanted to remain in her own home. And Terry and his three sisters wanted to support her in that endeavour. And some lived quite close by and were able to pop in regularly. Terry didn't live quite so nearby, but he would go and spend one or two weekends a month. He'd go and live at his mum's house, which gave his sisters a break for the weekend with their families and also gave him very precious time with his mum. But he worried that his sisters didn't seem to realise how sick their mum was. And he was a little bit concerned that maybe she didn't realise how sick she was. So he started to have conversations with each of them where he mentioned that he thought that maybe time was getting short for their mum. And one of the things that was so remarkable for him about it was, you know, she's the mum of all four of us. She's brought us all up the same way can't believe four people can have such different attitudes to the idea that their mum is dying. So one of the sisters said, oh, I don't think you should even say that. That's terrible. It's wishing her away. It's just too sad. Don't say that anymore. One of the sisters said, do you know what? Sometimes she looks a bit frightened to me and I wonder whether she thinks that too, but I don't know how to ask her and I'm not sure whether or not we should say anything. And their big sister said, that's absolute nonsense and you cannot ever discuss that with mum. Even the idea of discussing it would kill her. Practically, I forbid you ever to do that. You know, she really went into big sister mode. And yet he knew that almost certainly from some of the things that she was saying to him, mum was aware that things were not going in the right direction. But he also knew that if he carried on cultivating the suspicions of the other two sisters, that would be really undermining to the older sister, to Big Sis, and that he was going to have to tackle Big Sis first because she took being Big Sister very, very seriously. So so the, the story is in the book to talk about that state of knowing about serious illness or some other, you know, really bad thing being wrong and how we can as individuals inhabit several different places at different times around that same situation. And some of the time we can choose not to know. And I was thinking about this in two sort of situations. Sometimes before infidelity is discovered, there's a sense of knowing and not knowing. Mm. And the same when there's sort of addiction issues is around as well. There's a sort of knowing and a not knowing and moving backwards and forwards. So it doesn't just happen around death. No. It happens around all sorts of other things as well, which is why I really welcomed the chance to talk to you yes, about Yes, and you're absolutely right. And, and so people have these periods of time when 
the evidence is gathering, isn't it? And if you string the evidence together, one of the possibilities is that your child is not developing as other children of the same age develop, or your parent is actually more forgetful and a little bit more bewildered than a person of an equivalent age might be. Mm. And perhaps this is a serious diagnosis rather than just being a little bit older forgetty. So you're right, it's, it's absolutely not just about death, it's about the human condition and that we're able to inhabit a space that says, well, it's probably going to be all right and feel emotionally assured. And then at other times we go to that place, but well, what if, because I have noticed this and I have noticed this and I do wonder that. And then that's emotionally churning for us because we're now stepping into that in-betweenness of what if in fact there is something really bad going on here. And then there's another place, which is certainty, which is knowing. And a lot of my patients down the years have described that transition from, I've got a lump and it might be cancer and it's being investigated and I really hope it's not cancer. Oh, but it could be cancer. I hope it's not, but it could be that. And then they get told, actually, this is cancer. This is what's going to happen. This is the treatment plan. And the relief of knowing and knowing now what I need to plan for is much more comfortable than the uncertainty of not knowing. So how did Terry navigate this? So Terry was very, very skillful and he decided what he'd do was invite Big Sis over during one of the weekends he was on mum watch. And he, of course, had had conversations with his own respiratory patients hundreds, thousands of times about their concerns and their worries. And he was able to navigate those conversations and help people simply by being curious and walking alongside their concerns and asking them what made them think about that concern. And being silent when he needed to be silent. Yes, and just shutting up in between times. So he suggested that his big sister come over for lunch And he then engineered that mum would have a snooze before Big Sis arrived so she'd be awake and ready for a conversation and then they'd sit down together, have a cuppa. And he just very gently started asking her how she thought things were going. And she, as he had completely anticipated, started to say that sometimes she thought that maybe she wasn't very well. And do you, do you have people who are as sick as I am in, in your practice, Terry? And at that point, Big Sis, of course, wants to reassure. So she jumps in and says to mum, oh, it's not the same thing, mum, because this is your heart. And Terry looks after people with lung problems and, you know, you mustn't worry. And Terry just kind of moved himself closer to be able to sit beside them and touched his sister's hand to stop her talking and was able to say, just say that again, mum, tell me what it is that concerns you about that. Yes, I I do see people who get very tired, need to sleep a lot, lose their appetite, lots of the things that you're going through. I do see that. And what what is it about that that you want to know? And his mum magnificently described her fear that maybe she was so sick that she could die, that her real fear was not dying, It was that she would die in bed alone, which would be okay, but one of her beloved children would then be the person to find her dead the next Mm. day and how difficult that would be for them and that she worried about them so much. And so just by allowing his mum to speak with his sister as a witness that he hadn't broken bad news, he had elicited her concerns and that mum was in this lonely place of almost knowing, but never having had her suspicions confirmed. And that in-betweenness was completely lonely because she had no companion there because she didn't want to distress her children by talking to them about her concerns. And so when his big sister said, mum, why didn't you say anything? Mum said, well, I think the others have guessed, but I didn't think you had guessed. And that's because she'd been being so robustly cheerful and everything's going to be fine every time she'd visited. And in her kindness, 
had actually locked mum in this lonely place where she couldn't have that conversation. So Terry was then able to leave them to have a hug while he went off to the job, which was making the lunch. And then once Big Sis was on board, they were able to arrange the conversations that allowed them to talk about mum's plans, think about how she could summon help if she felt unwell in the middle of the night, say the important things, begin the farewells that were going to be necessary because this was her terminal illness. It was a heart failure illness, not a cancer illness. But they were now able to have those important conversations. And by moving mum from that kind of in-betweenness that everybody else had condemned her to, to her place of knowing, she was now able to have companions and not be occupied all the time by wondering. She's now got emotional space to do nice things, to have visits with her grandchildren, to start writing the Christmas shopping list and things like that. In between, this is terribly lonely and it's also terribly preoccupying. So it's a place of stormy emotions with no port. And it's almost as though welcoming somebody into knowing also offers them a harbour where it's, the waters are less choppy and you can get off the boat for a while and do other things while you're ashore. That's a lovely story and thank you very much for sharing it with us. One of the other kinds of listening that I think is very important, particularly for the meaningful life, is listening to ourselves. Have you got any advice on how to listen to ourselves rather than march onwards? It's a really important thing, isn't it? We have a voice inside us that we, we all do, the, the me inside me that tells me how I'm doing and holds me to account. And it's important that we do, but we tend to listen to that voice without holding it to account in the same way as we might hold a person sitting in a chair opposite to us to account. So if it's driving us to work harder and harder and harder, or it's telling us we're not working hard enough, or it's telling us that you know, there are so many things to do and you're never going to get through them all. It's often a critical voice when we're stressed. It's often a far calmer voice when we're less stressed, when we're emotionally well. Our inner voice often is our friend. So there is something about stopping to discern what inner me is telling myself. And in cognitive behaviour therapy, that's the thing that we teach people to do all the time. And that there's a story in the book, in fact, of a young man with cystic fibrosis who's making a lot of assumptions about himself, his relationship with his mum and with a, a younger adult relative who some of the time is his pal, but some of the time goes into a kind of parenting mode with him. But he's making a lot of assumptions about not being a good enough son and being a difficult person and helping him to notice the critical voice inside his head and write the things down, or to start off with, I was writing the things down. Was It was a beautiful, beautiful encounter with him because as he was able to say the things out loud that his inner voice was saying to him and then give me evidence for or against those things, he was able to realise that you have stuff in your head and you think it's true and it's rubbish. And that was so relieving of, of his burden. Some of the stuff that I believe about myself is rubbish. And he, he was a rapper. He actually made a rap about the rubbish that's in your head and you don't really have to believe it. And it was just the most fantastic moment, I think, in therapy I've ever had. I made an attempt to recapture his rap in the book. Ill thought through because I was going to narrate the audiobook. I've had to read the audiobook, which means, <laughs> which means, dear listeners, that I did have to rap, which caused some hilarity on the recording desk in the studio next door. But it was a beautiful example of a young person discovering that we do self talk and we do believe our self talk. And sometimes we're not our kindest friend in that self-talk. And sometimes we let ourselves completely off the hook in that self-talk. So actually learning that our inner voice needs also to be trained to be a little bit more discriminatory, to be kinder to us when it's being mean and to hold us to account when it's being a little bit relaxed about standards, is it's an important friend to make in our lives, that inner voice. 
There's a, a phrase from sort of Buddhist meditation, I think, that's really useful at this point. You are not your thoughts. And it's very easy to think we are our thoughts. Mm. I have a podcast on that subject. Look up You Are Not Your Thoughts. Um, That would be another good one to listen to in association with this particular podcast. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. We've decided to do something slightly different in the sense that we're inviting everybody now to write in with their letters and questions. So if you've got something you'd like me to discuss on the podcast and get the benefit of one of my witnesses to talk alongside me with it, if you go to my website, you'll find ways of communicating with me, the website www.andrewgmarshall.com. So this is a letter that's been written in for me to discuss with Catherine. I'm caught in the middle of a fight between my parents and my wife over our son. I want to keep the peace but keep making everybody angry. We live in an apartment across a courtyard from my parents. When it became available, my wife was against the idea. But I had this picture of our son, who is now seven, being able to run back and forth between his granny and us, getting the best of both worlds, time with us, and time with his grandparents. Both my wife and I have demanding jobs and built-in childcare was just too good to refuse. And as my mother said, why pay someone when family is at hand? Unfortunately, my wife and my mother clash about everything from what he can eat upwards. My wife wants him to have no sugar and caffeinated drinks, and my mother says it's a grandmother's privilege to spoil her only grandson. My parents want to offer to pay for him to go to private school, My wife does not want him to leave his friends and the school is two bus journeys or a car trip away. I could go on. My wife says I put my mother first, which is a lie, but she says I don't respect her and I can't really love her. My mother says my wife is too sensitive and twists her words. I just want everyone to get on. So what are your thoughts, Catherine? Oh boy. Oh boy. (laughs) This is is such, such an interesting dilemma. I wonder whether this writer wonders what the anger is about. That he, you know, I keep making everybody angry. So I wonder whether he understands that we all have blind spots and could become curious about what might be his blind spots. Because I'm moved to ask when, when I read this, what is his primary relationship? Is it with his wife or is it with his mother? And probably what is her primary relationship? Is it with her husband or is it with her son? Yeah, indeed. So so there are lots and lots of questions to be asked here, aren't there, by us. But most of those are questions to help him to ask because, you know, I just want everybody to get on that great hand-washing statement at the end that none of this is my fault and I don't like the unhappiness. And he's named anger and clashing and he's named lack of love and he's accusing somebody of lying. But it's all about everybody else and it's all everybody else's problem here. So I would be really interested to ask him what he thinks people are angry about. I'd be really interested to know what he thinks respecting his wife would look like and what she thinks respecting her would look like. And I just want everybody to get on. So I I might start with, what if that is never going to be possible? Because he's decided the solution is everybody is going to get on. And I don't get a sense of a curiosity about the work that he might have to do for that to happen. It sounds like a kind of helpless childlike question of, can you help me to make this better rather than can you help me to understand and be part of the solution? 
So how was he going to listen to, let's start off with his wife? Mm. Because she's going to get very upset and very angry. And my suspicion is he's going to get very defensive. Yes, absolutely. Or even go on the attack. Mm. It is very interesting, isn't it, to think about how can he create a safe space with a contract in it about that listening? And that maybe they can only do that for a limited amount of time. But to be truly, truly curious about one thing, and maybe the contract is, I want to understand more about how you think I don't respect you. I think perhaps the wife's relationship with the mother is down the line here, and it's very easy for that to become about them and not about him. So for him to do that kind of rehearsal in his own mind of, I am going to listen. I'm going to use a question, question, waltz pattern of anything she says to me, I'm not going to argue with. I'm going to accept as the truth is the way she sees it. And by the end of 10 minutes of discussing it in this way, I may feel sadder. I may feel many difficult emotions, but I will have a better understanding of how it feels to be my wife. And the intent of that particular conversation is only to understand how it feels to be her, not to fix it, not to make it better, not to make progress in any particular direction, but simply to have listened well. And to understand a little bit better from that listening. So he will need to take some time afterwards, won't he, to reflect. He may feel quite wounded by some of the things she might say, because he sounds as though he doesn't like difficult emotions. So when she's describing what she's feeling, if he loves her, and he probably does love her, he's going to be hurt by the things that he hears about her interpretation of the way their relationship is at the moment. And again, to understand that this is a snapshot in time. We're talking about how the relationship is at the moment in order to be able to use time as one of our tools. What things might we change a little bit as time goes by so that we're building a bridge from where she is to where he is and where he's building a bridge from where he is towards where she is that they can meet on. And there must be a place that they both move towards. So here's a curious question, because I really don't know the answer to it. So I'd love for you to help me think about it. Now, he's obviously going to need to listen to his mother as well. But should you be prepared to listen to a whole list of criticisms about your wife? What do you think about that? I think that's really interesting. And I think that's why one of my early questions to him if we were meeting would be for him to define his primary relationship because that's the relationship that he has to support and defend and co-work in this situation. So if he decides that it is his wife, then part of his conversation with his mother is about We're talking here about my life partner. I have chosen her. I am dedicated to her. I want you to be able to work with her for the good of our son and your grandson. And I am not prepared to hear her being insulted. We have to behave here like grown-ups. There's something here that sounds a little bit like playground mudslinging, isn't there? And again, it's interesting to speculate about whether that's the childlike mindset of the writer or whether that's actually a, a, a real thing that's going on. You know, it's almost as though he's being parented by his wife and by his mother and his two mummies are fighting. And I'm sort of wondering whether it's sort of okay to hear about your mother's opinion about behaviour like what happened in a particular argument between the two of them. Now, that might be okay, but what I don't think you want is something that then takes the behaviour and turns it into a character assassination. So disrespectful, for example, is about 
the character, yeah. whereas I don't agree with about some particular incident is something entirely different. Yeah, yeah. I, and there's a good example of it in the letter, isn't there? There's the what this child should eat and drink when visiting grannies is a great example of that. Your wife has ridiculous rules about what this child can eat and drink and I'm the granny and I should be allowed to indulge him. And so there's some listening to do there, isn't there, to his mum and her views about grannying and his wife and her views about responsible parenting. And there's also a conversation about whether in this context, I'm curious about whether granny thinks she's being a granny or whether she thinks she's being a co-parent. Because if she's an intermittent granny, she can give treats and she's quite right. The occasional treat is not a problem. But if she's a co-parent and every single day is treat day, then that is a different attitude to the house rules of the actual parents of this child. And we can indulge grannies when they want to indulge in occasional treats. But I'm not sure as responsible parents that we can indulge grannies in changing the way children live their lives day in, day out. So there's something about their conversation where he needs to discover what the relationship is that granny would like to have with this grandson. That is a bit of grandmother wisdom coming there. Thank you very much for that, um, Catherine. I love the difference between um, are you a grandparent or a co-parent? And I, I think you're right. There is a huge difference between seeing somebody three times a year and three times a day. Mm. So in your book, you stress that with listening and, you know, a difficult conversation, you've got to, you've got to end safely. So as we're about to end, any advice on how to end safely uh, a difficult or a tender conversation? It's really important, isn't it, if we've unpacked our emotions or we've searched deeper parts of ourselves, that we're able to finish in a way that allows us to step from that conversation back into the rest of the world as we're required to be. It's partly what you're doing here, which is reminding me that we do need to end safely and a kind of timekeeping statement. Because if I've been talking to my friend whose husband never listens to anything she says and lets granny indulge her son and she's feeling terribly upset about it. In a moment, she has to, you know, leave the safety of my house or our telephone call and go back to be who she is in the world. So being able to say, you know, it's coming towards the end of the time that we've got available. Are you okay? What do you need to do now to get yourself into a better place? A a little bit like Dorothy helping that new widow to be safe enough in the room where we were sitting before she then took her the next step, which was to see her dead husband in a bed. And gradually she's walking her into this new reality. So good timekeeping is important. And I used to really struggle with that. You know, the idea that, you know, I can feel I'm talking to this person who's sobbing their eyes out in the car park in the supermarket but I need to look at my watch because I'm doing the school run. And is it rude to look at my watch? Same dilemma, in fact, in therapy, if there isn't a clock on the wall, how do you find out where you are? And something that I was given in supervision, in fact, was another one of the cognitive therapists in our group who said, I always make the client responsible for timekeeping. (gasps) What a genius idea. So, okay, so we say at the beginning, okay, so it's, such and such a time now, and we've got until this time to talk. And I want to make sure that we've summarised everything and worked out the things you might need to do before we meet next. So could you give me a time check when there's 10 to 15 minutes left, just in case I get carried away? Wonderful. So now I can check my watch and I can say, oh, I can see we've still got 20 minutes left. So actually we've got another five or 10 minutes to just finish what we're talking about now. And that'll still leave us 10 minutes. And now time starts to feel generous instead of constrained. Same thing when somebody says, I've got something on my mind. Can I talk to you about it? And very often they mean now, but it's okay to say, well, that sounds really important. I'm actually 
due in a meeting in 10 minutes time. If you think 10 minutes is enough, I can talk now. But if you think it needs more than that, because I want to give you good attention, I can get my diary out and we can plan a meeting, especially for us to talk about this thing together. Which would you prefer? So you're not saying no, you're saying when. So it goes back to that thing we were talking about at the very beginning about the invitation into a conversation, not necessarily meaning that we have to invite, begin, process, sort out and finish all in one conversation. They can be several conversations, but each conversation needs to reach an end point where I'm metaphorically dressed again. I may have been emotionally naked during that conversation, but I've got myself back to a safe place. So thank you very much for being my witness on The Meaningful Life for the second time. So I'm not going to ask you what makes your life meaningful this time. I'm going to give you an even harder question. What would make your life more meaningful? I'm glad you gave me notice of this question because I did have to go and have a a good old think. So one of the things that I've realised over the last 18 months is that during lockdown, I was running regularly on the days when I wasn't at work because I went back to work for a little while during COVID. And then I got a very sore knee and I became unable to run. And that was a huge deprivation, both of my assumptions about my fitness, but also I discovered of the space in which I take me time, being out of doors, in nature, because we live in the wilds, and just thinking, just processing. Listening to yourself. Indeed, indeed. And sometimes not noticing that my inner voice isn't being very nice to me, but at least having a little bit of space there to to think things through. So as a consequence of the sore knee, I sought help. And the help I got was a very capable physiotherapist who gave me a lot of work to do, not on my knee, but on my balance, on the way I walk, on the muscles in my legs, all kinds of things. It was kind of the equivalent of psychotherapy where you go along with problem X and you end up talking about life, the universe and everything. But what it showed me was that little changes assiduously adhered to, a lifestyle change in those ways of walking, moving, taking exercise, changed the way I walk has allowed me to cautiously re-engage with running, but not for very far or very long yet. And in the meanwhile, I've taken up yoga and it's shown me the importance of the meditative space. So for my life to be more meaningful, I understand now because I lost it and was bereft of it, that I need that meditative space. And that if I can't get back to running to create that space, I have to make other different equivalent changes to that physiotherapy program. But this is a mental and emotional physiotherapy program to deliberately cultivate a contemplative practice of some sort. So I hope next time I talk to you, I'll be able to tell you that I have managed to create and maintain that contemplative space. And sometimes when you tell people you're going to do something, your inner voice reminds you that you've told people and it helps you to stick with it, doesn't it? You've told quite a few people, actually. So I think the the power Uh has been increased dramatically (laughs) by all of our, our listeners. So thank you for helping me to think about listening. If you want to hear about how to be heard, really heard, that's with Viv Groskop, and that's episode 54. If you want to hear more from Catherine and her book, With the End in Mind, that's episode 30, and that's called What You've Been Told About Death Might Be Wrong. Now, this is the point where the conversation has to end for most people, but if you are a member of our supporters circle, more details to come in just a second, we will actually talk a bit more about listening. And we're going to talk about something that's in the book, which is really brilliant, which is sort of breaking down listening into various parts, sort of listening a style guide. So we'll be talking about that. If you want to find out more about how to become a supporter and join in this conversation, here are the details. 
You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.